Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Dr. Kenneth J. Arrow, Professor of Economics Emeritus at Stanford University and 1972 Nobel Prize winner in Economic Science, and Professor John B. Taylor, Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics at the Hoover Institute, Stanford University, discuss economic theory and fluctuations in output and inflation. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and don't forget to subscribe to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Go back a long time, I was a graduate student, uh, and at the at that time, and particularly the institution I was at, Columbia University, uh, was the, one of the biggest topics was business cycles, as they called it then. Uh, fluctuations in output, some lesser emphasis on price uh, instability, although that played a role too. It was quite disconnected with uh, basic theory, which is taught in other courses. Uh, now, uh, one thing that came along, uh, well, it had already come along, but it hadn't quite reached Columbia, was uh, Keynes's work on uh, employment and uh, uh, money. Um, uh, and it struck me that the difference between what I was hearing in class and what Keynes was teaching was that it was that one of, there are many differences, but one of them was that Keynes was talking about, was there unemployment? How big was the unemployment? It was, it was, whereas what I was hearing in class was how, it, how employment fluctuated. Was, one was an emphasis on the levels, what the, how, what the level of employment was, or what the price level, whereas, the, uh, whereas I hear a lot of the literature uh, then and, and I think now, although the level of sophistication has risen enormously, um, is an emphasis on fluctuations. And so one aim was stabilization, keeping things at a constant level, whereas the other one would emphasize keeping things at a high level. Uh, that is, uh, one thinks offhand that the welfare of people, which is what we're ultimately interested in, depends on the level rather than the fluctuations. And uh, what do you think, the, am I mistaken in thinking there's an opposition between these two points of view? And uh, what, uh, what do you think the general drift of analysis like yours has been? Well, I think there's certainly a difference uh, between the two, conceptually, as you point out, between, say, keeping the unemployment rate low on average versus keeping the fluctuations in employment and output small on average. I think when Keynes wrote, uh, especially uh, in and sh shortly after the Great Depression, uh, the main <laughs> fluctuation was down. We had this huge uh, increase in unemployment decline in production. And so the distinction was less visible then. Stabilization really meant uh, getting back to a lower level of unemployment. And so they really won uh, the same, I think. And um, his contributions then were to emphasize demand and uh, the idea of having a greater amount of aggregate demand in the whole economy to, to uh, reduce the high level of unemployment. Uh, was quite consistent with uh, theories that want to keep the fluctuations small. So I think that um, that's how to think about those days. These days, uh, there's still a distinction between the fluctuations and the level. Um, one of the uh, things that people have emphasized more is that the fluctuations are due more to monetary policy or things that the uh, stabilization policy can address directly, 
whereas the, the levels, the long-term average unemployment, say you know, four or five percent with ups and downs, those are things that are less uh, approachable through monetary policy, uh, but, but more uh, approachable through employment policy or uh, labor laws, sometimes called structural problems. So, so these days, when you think about high unemployment in Europe or low unemployment in the U.S., most of the explanations have to do with structural things. They have to do with labor markets, whereas you want to th think about the ups and downs in the economy is more related to monetary policy. I, I would just add briefly, though, it seems to me that keeping the fluctuations small is really very important from a point of view of welfare, because the, um, the, the, the harms, if you like, of, of recessions uh, when the unemployment rate goes up, even though it's, it's temporary, it's three or four years, that's a long time, but it's still temporary, those are very harmful. And so avoiding those, I think, is very important. And somehow, avoid, sometimes avoiding them means you don't go too far in the other direction. You keep a, a more even keel, and making ups, ups and downs smaller is really good because those bottoms are so painful and harmful to people. You think the, in a way, this fits in with the problems of uh, uh, theory uh, that, uh, in a sense, we were, we're uh, we've been concerned with in, in price theory. By, by theory, I mean price, theory of prices. Uh, that the theory of real prices, <laughs> perhaps is a better way of putting it. Um, the that uh, we look for equilibrium levels, and of course. In the labor market, uh, clear we have supply and demand equal in the labor market. By definition, you have full employment. There the difference between full employment as theoretically defined this way and full employment as measured as measured is a somewhat they're, 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 not, they're not quite the same thing, but they're not that different either. We expect to have you know that may correspond uh, f uh, full employment in the theoretical sense may correspond to a few percent. Unemployment, it certainly doesn't correspond to eight or ten percent. Right. Uh, exactly where it goes, and there's a question of uh, what you allow for for the inevitable searching for new jobs, uh, people in transition. Uh, in a dynamic economy, things right. are fluctuating, and well, theory tells you they move immediately. We understand that there's, there's there are transitions. Uh, so it 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 is a kind of a a, a level phenomenon. Um, and yet, as you point out, there are fluctuations. Now, of course, the welfare losses due to fluctuations have been disputed. You know, Robert Lucas has argued that they're really very small. Uh, now, some people think his calculations are a little suspect. Um, well, those calculations are based on just the consumption smoothing. That, yeah, consumption, uh, right. people's consumption going up and down is less of a problem than consumption growth being small. I think a lot of the costs of recessions that people think about uh, who observe them are the, the unemployment that's caused and the other effects that are not directly related to, to consumption. But, but you're right, if you just look at consumption, um, the extra improvement you can get from the post-war period is small, although the Great Depression and, mm -hmm. and events like that were s severe no matter how you measure them. So, yeah, so avoiding that, I think, is... is you yes. know, I think one of the major accomplishments of policy is to avoid the great things like the Great Depression. And so far we've been, been good at that. Hopefully we'll continue. Kane, one of the things that Keynes, concepts that Keynes introduced, um, which I guess probably has somewhat faded out, but probably may still be worth revisiting, 
is the idea that in some sense you can have equilibrium at a less than full employment. Uh, by equilibrium we mean a state where there's no natural forces tending right. to change. In other words, you can have persistent unemployment uh, without any uh, uh, any pressures within the economic system. I mean, may, pol there may be policy pressures, but the natural forces of the economy unaffected by policy would not get you out of the unemployment. Uh, uh, people have, uh, there's been a lot of, uh, of history now, and uh, it's hard to say because the history has been dominated by policy measures. Right. But we do have Europe now as, an, as, as a seeming example of a long-term unemployment equilibrium. Let's say uh, right. uh, now, uh, what's your? Is this an analytically useful concept? Is it a? Uh, is it a? Well, um, I think uh, it's analytically interesting um, to conceive of different uh, levels of e different equilibria and to find models that generate multiple equilibria, mm -hmm. and there are quite a few, as you know. I think from a, a useful point of view, I have my doubts about that, uh, the multiple equilibria. In terms of the overall economy, I think an equilibria in which uh, you have the aggregate level of demand, total demand in the economy equal to the available supply uh, is, um, well-defined and practical, you can, you can measure in different ways, capacity utilization or unemployment. And uh, when you think of Europe in those terms, it's really necessary to think about the high unemployment that they've had over a long period of time, not just one business cycle, as really due to things that are not directly related to demand not equaling supply, but people have, have made decisions based on Labor law, for example, firms may be reluctant to hire because of the difficulty mm -hmm. of uh, uh, letting go of someone because of labor laws if they're not working out. So that will tend to reduce the likelihood of them hiring, raising unemployment, or <clears throat> what people seem to find is very generous uh, unemployment insurance or other kind of welfare payments will uh, reduce the incentive people have to search and look for a job. And so that's just the natural economics. People will have longer spells of unemployment. So you can explain some of the higher unemployment uh, in Europe compared to the US on those grounds. And it's not really a multiple equilibria, it's just another way to describe a standard type of equilibrium. I prefer to think of it that way, although I, I'd be the first to admit that you look at Spain and you see these double digit unemployment rates, you begin to wonder whether you're not missing something. It's, they're very high. I, I, I'm always puzzled why there's not more concern about it in Europe, because I think if that was in the United States, we'd see a lot more concern uh, than we than we apparently observe in Europe at this point. I think it's a problem. This is a digression from our theme, just other, because for we, it would be a remark on political economy. Yeah. Uh, and what was striking is in the early post-war period, people compared Europe and the United States with regard to their attitudes toward full employment, but the was exactly the reverse, that the Americans were much more tolerant of unemployment and the Europeans were that's true. Well, we, rates yeah. of one and a half, two percent. Well, you know, I said, you know, right. we never achieved anything of that of that kind, and it was only in the uh, '60s that we really hit uh, at least, uh, you know, got down to three and four percent, and that only for it, yeah, it's four or five years. Yeah. It switched. We, uh, we it was a big uh, switch of that. We used to have unemployment higher in Europe on average, and uh, now we, since certainly in the in the '80s and '90s, mm -hmm. have unemployment lower than Europe on average, and. Uh, there are theories that explain it, uh, 
based on these changes in labor market practice, but they're not fully satisfactory. The British after them are considerably less restrictive than the continent, and yet yeah, their unemployment rate has come down. The Actually, one of them come down, but still quite one, high, isn't it? One of the amazing uh, uh, things to look at within Europe to see the effect of labor market policy is what's happening in Holland, and uh, they have really made some changes in their laws with respect to unemployment, with respect to wage policy, and their unemployment rate has come down tremendously. Yes. So there's some some evidence that there's something there besides this macro, overall macro policy. By the way, this, uh, that's your opinion of this. There's been, sometimes people claim that an active, um, what's called, somebody's called an active labor market policy, which essentially means improving employment exchanges and, uh, you know, and then the like, have been, uh, have shown some significant effects, say in countries like Sweden, and I think the Netherlands also. That uh, is that is your view that you could actually really achieve quite a bit by uh, by just more uh, retrain. Of course, this includes retraining, you know, permitting so permitting workers to shift across industries more easily. Well, I think the the uh, government programs of retraining have uh, been less important than the private sector programs of retraining, which uh -huh. have been tremendous, I think, and. Um, I think the retraining programs of the government have been disappointing. There's a lot of different programs. It's hard to estimate their impact. Um, but the uh, you know a lot of firms now uh, try to place their workers who've been laid off and, and help out in that. And I think that's there's some signs that that's been quite helpful. Um, You've heard in the United States. In the United States, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I've seen the claim has been made frequently. Right. Say, Anthony Atkinson has referred to Sweden. Has been very successful I, in this, in uh -huh. this direction. I, yeah, I'm not. I, I really don't know that yeah. mm -hmm. that program enough to I don't, say I don't, much about I, it. I don't know either. Other, <laughs> other than what I've just said, right. the uh, now uh, the I, th I think to come to something let's say more specific to your interests, uh, the question of monetary policy. Um, as now, as you've in fact, you already referred to the fact that you think it seems to be mainly useful for uh, for smoothing out price fluctuations. For preventing inflation, right? More specific, right. but less useful for output, uh, for smoothing output. That uh, the idea of monetary policy, you know, that there was a view, certainly in Keynes, and that's probably much older than that, actually. That if you, if you already have a depression, one of the things you want to do is pump money into the system, mm -hmm. promote demand on the mm -hmm. grounds these workers are idle, and anything which puts them to work is going to be good. <clears throat> of course, monetary policy has long run effects. And perhaps, uh, well, I think uh, monetary policy is certainly is effective in keeping uh, inflation uh, from getting very high. Monetary policy is capable of doing that. But I also think monetary policy is capable of uh, affecting real variables like unemployment in the short run. In the long run, we seem to find a lot of evidence that it doesn't have a lasting effect on unemployment no. or production. But in the short run, I think it's very powerful and strong effects. Um, for the most part, it seems to me that the goal of keeping inflation in check is very similar to the goal of keeping output in check. And there's really, there is a trade-off of, of some kind between the two, but it seems to me for many purposes it's, uh, it's, it's not really there. And let me try to explain it because I think it's actually fascinating what's happened in the last uh, 20 years or so in the U.S. And, and less than that in some other countries. As the uh, central banks, like the Fed in the U.S., have, have tried to keep inflation lower, uh, 
say that in the 60, late 60s and 70s, uh, we've had smaller and less frequent fluctuations in the economy. So it's as if somehow that policy of keeping inflation low and stable has brought about um, an economy with fewer and less severe recessions. So that would suggest there's not much of a, of a trade-off at all. And I think there's, a, there's an explanation for that, and, and that is that in the, all the uh, recessions we've had, certainly since World War II, there's been this run-up of inflation, and then the, the Fed has to, at some time, uh, control that, raising interest rates, and frequently have done it to a degree that they caused a recession. So I think what's happening is by keeping that inflation low, they've, they've avoided those bouts of tightness, which have caused a recession. So it's actually been quite, um, uh, this, the, the results have been favorable in terms of output fluctuations by keeping inflation fluctuations small. Now, to be sure, there, are, there is a trade-off at some point if, if, the, if the Fed tried to keep inflation flat under any circumstances, say if there was an oil price shock or other disturbances, they would, there would at some point be a trade-off between the two, I believe. But, but so Do you far- you think it's what happened in 73 for people who, um, whether, when the- I think there's some questions in the 70s, although by and large, I think the, this, the history of the 70s was this inflation getting higher at each level and, mm-hmm. and then that causing the problem each time. So in, in fact, inflation started to pick up before the oil shocks. Yeah. And, and so, uh, but that's where a trade-off would occur. No question of that. Shock, yeah. But it, it's, it's fascinating to me how, how much of an improvement we seem to have had in the real economy, mm-hmm. uh, employment and output, <clears throat> and as a result of a policy that's been focused more on inflation. So there have been periods when, uh, when there was relatively no inflation followed by recession. Like, uh, yeah. You got to the Great Depression, I think, was not preceded by any inflationary... Well, the, the, uh, there was a buildup of, of price pressure and, you know, and asset markets and, and more broadly speaking in the 20s before this happened. And then in Japan, in the devastating <laughs> uh, economy of Japan in the 90s was preceded by some measures of inflation increase, and although they more, do tend to be more on the asset side. But um, see, on the other hand, I think, is that we've learned two things you know, that are very important as a result of experience of the Great, the great Depression showed uh, the importance of keeping demand from sinking. Uh, and the great inflation of the late 60s and 70s um, showed the problems of, of, uh, of too much demand or too much stimulus. So I think those lessons, the Great Depression, sometimes called the Great Inflation, I think have combined to, to, uh, to be informative for policy from that experience. Um, and so that's why I would tend to think that the bad old days of really deficient demand um, are less likely in the future because of those experiences. And also perhaps the bad old days of too much of inflation. So if, if, if that historical experience is incorporated in decision makers of the future, I think it would be favorable for the future. Yeah, as a as a price theory, as a theory of standard theory, which the which monetary the monetary series really don't enter, um, but which clearly is a deficient, therefore by, by omitting this, by omitting these problems. Um, as I said before, we have this idea of equilibrium and supply equals demand, and I find a rule of uh, of, of a proposition which seems to hover around monetary policy is the idea that there's a kind of an equilibrium rate of employment. It's 
called the uh, natural rate of unemployment or the non-accelerating inflation right. rate of unemployment, if I, if I got that right, narrow. Um, you've, you've, uh, but the, 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 the curious thing is that the, this level is frequently seems rather high from the usual, uh, sometimes rather high from the point of view of the kind of price theory I'm accustomed to, the supply equals demand viewpoint. Um, and uh, you, you find figures sometimes in the past, the United States quoted six, seven percent unemployment. Now we seem to have below four with no or maybe only infinitesimal signs yeah. of, uh, of inflation. So, uh, so do you think that this concept of natural rate of unemployment is uh, a, a, a either theoretically or a practically useful one, especially when it takes account it looks from crude measurements as though it's it's a lot, a lot different in different countries and yeah. is, is considerably variable over time. Well, I think it's a useful concept, um, uh, but you're right. You have to take into account that we don't, no one knows exactly where it is and you have to bring in a lot of auxiliary information. It changes over time. It's different in different countries. But I think the general concept that there's a level of unemployment um, which um, is, is due to search or waiting, people looking for a job, the normal transition, which is going to occur in equilibrium. Um, that is where demand and supply are pretty much in balance. I think that's a useful concept. It's, you know, it's, we, it's not zero unemployment. Um, it, as you said before, it's hard to believe it could be 10% unemployment or 15% unemployment. But at some level in between there, I think it's useful to think about it uh, a normal state of the economy, uh, but that normal can move up and down uh, a bit. Uh, but it's useful because, uh, for, for example, for monetary policy, knowing whether you're providing too much or too little stimulus to the economy, which could too much could be inflationary, too uh, little could be uh, cause a recession. I think it's, it's very important to know that uh, what's actually been happening recently is taking into your concerns about the uncertainty. People have been trying to deal with that using uh, optimal control theory under uncertainty and trying to find ways to to have policy being less reactive or using information theory to deal with the fact that the, that the number is very uncertain, um, but we still want it. It still has some content, some, some economic content, some information value uh, to use. Just maybe an example. If if we just ignored it, you might say, "Well, let's just let's just drive the economy, really, you know, print print a lot of money, and maybe unemployment will go down to one percent." But it's so likely that that would cause inflation and make things worse yeah. in the future that you wouldn't want to do it. Well, I, I think there's no question that uh, inflation. What I'm really asking is whether the this, so to speak, equilibrium level that you're trying to achieve. Is well represented by the natural rate, or, the, or is there an entirely different approach, uh, which would uh, give rise to the same? Words, is uh, is employment the thing to look at necessarily, uh, as oh, opposed I, to other factors right, in, in no, the uh, economy? Not necessarily. No, it's a, the, for the point of view of the whole economy. It's the labor market is is very important, and it actually is ten, the unemployment tends to be correlated with other variables like capacity utilization. Yeah. But, but another measure that um, I tend to prefer is not the, the natural rate, but some measure of output, which is sometimes called natural output, which is kind of the equilibrium level of real GDP. If you're above mm -hmm. that, it's inflationary. You're below that, it's, it's recessionary. 
that seems to me a, a kind of a better way, better way to think about equilibrium in the whole economy rather than just focusing on the unemployment rate. But the reality is they're not a whole lot different because they move together mm-hmm. quite a bit. So like, in a, in like in a, if you think about a policy rule, you can either put the unemployment rate in or output and you have to have slightly different coefficients, but it doesn't really make much difference for policy. Now we're talking about policy, I know you've uh, been a close student of, uh, uh, as well as a policymaker, but also a close student of how policy is formed. And uh, perhaps you might explain a principle, a rule that you've, uh, that's uh, oh, the okay. Taylor rule, which is so widely quoted now as, uh, as presumably both a normative and a descriptive rule about right. policy. Well, that's um, what it is exactly is a description of how the Fed in the U.S. or another central bank, say the European Central Bank, would set the interest rate um, on when they meet at their meetings. And it's uh, an idea that if they look at the inflation rate and then they look at real GDP relative to normal, look at those two variables, inflation and real GDP, and move the interest rate up and down according to what's happening to those two, that it, uh, as you say, it's descriptively quite accurate. It describes their actual decisions, even though they, most central banks would look at many other things besides that. Um, But it also, based on economic theory and simulations of models, it seems to work well in keeping inflation steady and real output steady. So um, I thought about doing that originally because of the um, problems with measuring money. It used to be that you could think about monetary policy simply by either keeping money growth fixed, although I think you always needed to have some fluctuations. Um, but, but with the difficulty of measuring money and the changes in the economy, we've had to focus on interest rates. So this is kind of an alternative to that with the purpose being very similar. And uh, it's, uh, it's been surprisingly, um, apparently, useful to people actually making decisions, um, which, is, um, which I think is good. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it does uh, bring a little bit more science into the decision-making process, quantitative variables and rather than pure, uh, pure judgment. Mm-hmm. The, uh, that's something else, a more foundational uh, matter, which is, um, say we have a theory of uh, uh, it's been elaborated of the economy as a series of interlinking linked markets, which smoothly yeah. <laughs> runs into uh, equilibrium, and where meaning that supply and demand are equal in all markets. Uh, the there um, uh, um, and uh, presumably there are fundamentals in the economy, and the things will change only when some fundamentals change, and fundamentals would mean things like product, productivities, production conditions, uh, from the point of view of single concrete foreign trade conditions, uh, maybe changes in preferences among the, uh, 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 the, the, the people in the economy of the world. Um, <clears throat> uh, so, so they're a response, but presumably a part, the, these are the sort, if these things don't change, there shouldn't be any change in the economy. Now, is a little more complicated because there's links to the future. People invest right. with some expectations, so we can't, uh, and uh, that raises more complications about the nature of the asset market. Um, and the question is, can we, and now historically, now of course we have had, now as you 
and pointed out a long period of pretty stable, you know, what you might say that slave economy been working. There's one aspect, of course, which you mentioned briefly before, which is that the asset, you mentioned connection with Japan, but we're having the same thing in the United yeah, States, that the asset yeah. prices are moving in a very different direction than the rest of the economy. And whether this, we might go back into that. Yeah, but, yeah. I don't know. but apart from that, we do have something that you might even describe as equilibrium, although it's consistent with a lot of change. But, mm -hmm. which is what you, you hope for, is the ideal situation. Right. But historically, but this is unusual. I mean, but in the history of all the advanced industrial nations, this, this, this is an unusual event. And it's not even, it's unusual even internationally today. Yes, uh, uh, although it's becoming a little more common, but you're right. Yeah, you know, but okay, yeah. but I mean, Japan has got yeah. depressed, uh, Europe yeah. is at least uh, yeah. not quite. Um, and we certainly have had the strong fluctuations we referred to before. The Great Depression was an outlier, but We've had some pretty bad ones, even apart from that. Right, um, and even the post-war period had some somewhat severe recessions. Uh, so uh, now the question is, how can we explain the, this kind of irregularities? They don't seem to fit the underlying theory. Uh, well, some people have made an attempt to. There's one school of thought which says, no, this is all very consistent. That's, uh, yeah, the real business, I, cycle. Real business yeah. cycle theory, but I think there are some yeah. some problems with that. Uh, <clears throat> And one of the questions is, does that mean that the theory of equilibrium and competitive equilibrium really is inadequate? That there are at least some, or at least it needs modification to uh, explain um, the uh, uh, changes, right. the, the kind of changes we observe, macroeconomic fluctuations, fluctuations in the price level and uh, output employment and so forth. Um, and one one suggestion, of course, which I know you've worked on one uh, one aspect has been sticky that the wages uh, and right. prices, or particularly wages, are somehow not immediately responsive. Let me put it cautiously uh, to business conditions. And some people argue that what if you're really trying to explain what Keynes meant, you have to assume sticky right. wages. There's no way of uh, assuming that right. wage, uh, you can have unemployment with wages not falling. Did you think that's a... Uh, yeah, well, a, your, your, your point in question is one of the uh, most important ones in terms of macro theory or the theory of fluctuations. And uh, I know you've thought about it a lot. I have a lot of questions for you about it. But I think um, the, to me, the most promising way to describe the uh, movement from one equilibrium to another or just these ups and downs is that, that prices and wages don't adjust instantly. And so as a result, if there's a, a drop in demand, firms are going to produce less and hire fewer workers. And so that channel makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, and then you have a lot of evidence. Uh, wages don't change instantly. And for most workers, uh, a lot of prices do remain steady for a while. But then there's anomalies. You do see some prices that, that change uh, rapidly. So it's, uh, the, the but the data, I think, provide a lot of uh, reassuring that uh, reassur uh, a lot of co confirmation that it's a reasonable theory. The theory itself seems to me uh, has been improving, but still needs a lot more uh, of the kind of work that we've had for, with competitive equilibrium. Some of the, the, the rigor is not there. There's uh, tends to be more ad hoc types of assumptions. Um, I would uh, one of the things I've always found useful is the way you have thought about price adjustment as due to some temporary degree of market power uh, that a firm might have in, in, in disequilibrium. Because the, um, 
well, if you do say simulations of competitive markets, I know you've been talking to uh, Charlie Plot, and he has a lot of <laughs> a lot of simulations that shows that the prices don't instantly jump once the parameters change. There's a, there are these transitions, even though there's nobody uh, requiring that prices don't change right away. You see these these gradual movements. So, uh, and there and there's apparently no market power involved in those phenomena. So I, I would like to uh, ask you about uh, this because it seems to me that there's um, that the competitive equilibrium theory uh, doesn't really tell us much about transition from one state, one state to another when conditions change. And the market power may be one explanation, but it's not necessarily there because you see these sim simulations of markets where it doesn't occur. Yes, I think uh, <coughs> there has been some literature and that uh, certainly uh, uh, you're I didn't have really gone beyond the paper you referred to it myself, but I've been following uh, literature on uh, of others, and particularly regarding the labor market. Uh, and leaving, uh, let us leave aside government interventions you referred before to unemployment insurance and right. like, but leave the, apart from that, um, because as I say, the business cycles existed long before there was any significant sure. government intervention. Yeah. Um, there have been various arguments that uh, that the, that in particular the labor market you get this kind of localized monopoly power. Uh, one argument is that the there's a difference between insiders and outsiders. There's a whole set of uh, mm -hmm. models based on uh, Asser Lindbeck, Dennis Snower, mm -hmm. and others, um, where the essentially the 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 the, the, uh, the people are in. Because there, there are close connections, which the economic theory doesn't capture. I mean, it considers a worker as having some kind of purely contractual relationship with his employer, can be dismissed and replaced by another person instantaneously. Well, actually, it'd be very disruptive to do so right. uh, in a short run. In the long run, it happens all the time. But in the short run, uh, it, there's, a, there's a really disruptive effect. And if, you really, if all your workers resist uh, some cut in wages or something like that, you're not going to be in a hurry to do it. You'll think, a while. I mean, things have got to get pretty bad. You will do it under sufficient pressure. But that's exactly what we're talking about, right. stickiness. Right. Not, As it generates a stickiness, yeah. And um, so there are all sorts of conditions under which the, uh, they're, 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 the wages, therefore, really aren't. There is a wage being paid, which lots of people would like to be hired at. Mm -hmm. But the employer doesn't, lower, doesn't really cut his wage to attract those other people. Right. Of course, a very different line of theory, which is, is based is the principal agent literature, which has given rise to the so-called efficiency wage model, right. where uh, uh, in effect, uh, you know, there, there's always been this idea going back to Karl Marx that unemployment is a way by which employers discipline the labor force, prevent them from demanding too much. Mm -hmm. And economists tend to reject that because it sounds like a conspiracy theory. We don't see this conspiracy. Right. But what was brilliant about these ideas of people like uh, Stiglitz and Joe Stiglitz and Carl Shapiro or Samuel Bowles was that it didn't depend on it, that you could have this effect without a conspiracy. That essentially a worker, that it's, it points you, the employer didn't know that much about the qualities of his workers mm -hmm. and therefore paid a little above the market wage in order to, right. in order to have control of them because since you're paying above the market wage, means being fired mm -hmm. is a real penalty. If you're paying the market wage, firing somebody is no penalty. They'll just get a job elsewhere. 
So you have a situation where, the, where the, you, you pay a little bit above the market wage to get a better, to make sure that you have control over your workers. Well, then that means you're paying above the market wage. And actually, this reinforces itself because then there's unemployment. So actually, the penalty gets even bigger. You might, you might not only not get a, a job. Right. So you've got, you got a curious situation where even each worker, each employer acting solely in his own interest will nevertheless create a situation of unemployment. Now, the, the trouble with that is it doesn't give rise to fluctuations. Right. That's just what I was about to say. It's, it's for, me, uh, for me, to building models of fluctuations, they don't, those theories don't help very much. It's, yeah, but they, it's, they just explain one thing. Yeah. They do explain yeah. one thing. that Essentially, uh, employment fluctuations are downward, not upward. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's right. There's a, there's a rigidity to Over that. a long period of time, yeah. you average out unemployment. You don't yeah. average out. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't know. I'd like to, I, what it would be, I know from, but, from but my work, I'd love to have a better theory that we can put into these models of, of price adjustment, wage adjustment, and why it's slow, how long it's slow. Now it's like I, you know, based on empirical work, put in some average length of contracts or wages and then have some descriptions of how firms or workers adjust those. But um, if you think about it from this context, you mentioned the real business cycles briefly. Uh, th it's been nice how those models have been able to take what really is hour to brew models with uncertainty in time and have they create whole models of the economy. And as you say, they don't seem to be sufficient now, but you'd like to, you'd like to add some of these rigidities mm -hmm. into them. And now there's still this feeling that it's, it's not quite right. It's, a, it's ad hoc. It's not completely uh, consistent as much as the uh, pure general equilibrium, competitive yeah. equilibrium would be. So I, that would be a real contribution for the future. I think it's yeah. well worth it. Let me, let me turn to something, that's, uh, to another aspect of the matter. That's, that's what's question, uh, how, why money has this pervasive influence? Well, you, in, in your work and in a lot of other people's work too, for that matter, monetary fluctuations have real consequence. That's, I think, one of the, the real business side people where it says try to react against that viewpoint. Right. Uh, that by real, I mean, you know, independent, the things having to do with the quantities involved. Um, and, you, you know, that was a tradition in economics, the increased the amount of money, all prices go up by the same proportion. Right. There's, there's no real effect at all. That's just a, a change in the, your, your scoring system. That's all right. Uh, now, why? Uh, uh, what? What is it you think? Uh, and I know there have been a lot of attempts to try to show how money matters in a in a, in a significant sense, at least in the short run. Uh, and which one largest? Why money? How is it that the acts of say the, of the Federal uh, Federal Reserve, which uh, it goes through interest rate, but presumably the, one of one of the effects is to change the supply of money. Why this has a real effect on the economy, at least the well, the the uh, the real effect I think is primarily due to the slow adjustment of of wages and prices. So, and you say, if you just increase the money supply, if prices increase and wages increase by the same percentage, then everything is where it was before in real terms. Uh, the but that doesn't happen in reality because prices and wages don't move instantaneously. There's no really way for people to coordinate that one-time move, and they don't do that. So that's the real effect, I believe, is the most important way to think about it. And it does, it does you know, Hume used to talk about that in, in more 
informal ways, but ultimately I think that underlies the power of monetary policy for good or for bad. I think the um, uh, issue of now, which is difficult, is with the changing technology of uh, the internet and means of payment, which don't really use money as much. I think the uh, it's more difficult to see the role for money because it's not everybody just doesn't use gold or coin or even currency anymore. It's becoming a minor part, so that makes it more and more difficult for that theory uh, to be empirically useful. I think is the way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Some great talking. Yeah, it was, it was fun. I, I enjoyed it very uh, much. Uh, yeah. That's okay. it. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.